Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. It was a chilly February morning when Sarah King realized she needed kindling for the fire. The area was just digging out from a recent storm that dumped inches of snow, trapping most people inside as they waited for the drifts to recede. Sarah might have waited even longer, but she didn't quite have that luxury. Her job, as a house servant, called for her to keep the house warm, so off she trudged. Sarah walked into the brush and froze. Lying on the ground was a body. But her shock was about even more than just that. Sarah was a mixed-race servant, and this body belonged to a white woman. Beautifully dressed in expensive clothes, the remnants of a picnic lunch surrounding her, Sarah could see a bullet hole through the woman's temple. Soon, the area was teeming with police and curious onlookers eager to check out the biggest news to hit Jefferson, Texas, since the 1873 disbursement of the Great Raft of the Red River, the centuries-old naturally occurring logjam that prevented boats from traveling downriver to New Orleans. That news had certainly been of more national consequence, but this, the mysterious discovery of a lovely and rich murdered woman, well, Jefferson residents innately knew this was going to be huge. And they were right. Soon, the whole country would be desperate to learn every detail of the shocking case that led to not one, but two trials of the century. No one knew the full name of the woman found in the woods, but she wasn't a complete stranger either. Jefferson wasn't a small town by 1870 standards. In fact, even with just some 4,000 residents, it was the seventh largest city in Texas. But still, it was the kind of place where everyone knew each other, and those who didn't heard gossip from those who did. The town had been founded in 1843 and named for former President Thomas Jefferson. At its inception, They produced boots, shoes, iron goods, preserved meats for the army. That bit of history is from old-time road trip. The impeccably dressed woman had sparked some talk when she'd first arrived to town two weeks earlier. She'd come by train, accompanied by a young man, and she'd caught folks' attention straight away because she wore... Beautiful jewelry, including two very striking diamond rings. That's Mitchell Whittington in a Visit Jefferson video. The man and woman introduced themselves as a married couple. Over the next day or so... They were seen all around town, visiting the various shops and having a drink or two in the city's bars and taverns. Someone overheard the man refer to his missus as Bessie. The name spread around town but was amended to Diamond Bessie, thanks to her diamond rings. Now that she was a corpse, they noted, her fingers were bare, and the man who'd been with her, gone. 
The rumors and speculation began immediately. People with tidbits of information compared notes, and the story those tidbits told was damning. For starters, the two had argued incessantly. Multiple people at their hotel, on the street, at area restaurants, reported seeing the two bickering far more than your average couple. Two days after the couple arrived, they stopped by Enrique's restaurant on Polk Street and paid for a lunch to go. The lunch consisted of a cooked chicken, sandwiches, pickles, and two bottles of beer. The couple was then seen walking across the Polk Street Bridge over the Big Cypress Bayou with the picnic lunch. Plus, the man had been spotted alone later that night, and when people asked after his wife... He replied that she was having dinner in a local restaurant. Even later, when asked again, he said that she had stayed across the river with friends. Then he holed up in his rented room before taking the first available train out of town at 4 a.m. on January 23, 1887, more than a week before Diamond Bessie's body would be found. Clearly, the man had some questions to answer. Trouble was, no one knew his name. The couple had stayed at the High End Brooks House Hotel on Vale Street. Revisiting the registry, police noted that the man had signed them in as A. Monroe and wife. Staff there said they could hear the couple arguing the very first night they arrived. Like others who'd heard quarreling between the two, the staff said it sounded as though the topic at hand was Bessie's diamonds. He wanted them, and she refused to hand them over. And wouldn't you know it, hotel worker Jenny Simpson had noticed that the night A. Monroe came back to his room alone, he had had diamond rings on his fingers. Straight away, police were sure they knew the how and the why of the case, but the who, that was another matter. They learned quickly that if the gentleman's name really was A. Monroe, He left no trail for them to follow, though they were pretty sure from the start that the surname must be a fake. Unfortunately, no one heard Diamond Bessie call her man by his name, but they had heard something else. In chit-chatting with the locals, the couples had mentioned that they had visited Marshall, Texas, before Jefferson. It wasn't a great lead, but investigators were desperate for something, anything. So, armed with a disturbing photo of the woman's corpse, investigators traveled 16 miles to Marshall and hit up the comparable boarding houses. Almost immediately, they got a hit. A hotelier recognized the woman in the photo and said she'd stayed there with her husband. The worker pulled out the registry and pointed to an entry. This is them, he said. The line read, A Rothschild and wife. Finally, investigators were getting somewhere. His full name was Abraham Rothschild, though everyone called him Abe. Okay, not everyone, everyone, but he was fairly well known in his hometown of Cincinnati, Ohio. Born in 1855, Abe was the oldest child of Meyer Rothschild. His dad was a wealthy jeweler who operated a shop downtown on Fifth Avenue. He also owned a bunch of real estate and at least one bank. In the 1870 and 1880 censuses, Abe was documented as having two younger brothers, Charlie, born two years after Abe, and Jacob, born two years after Charlie. A younger sister named Ida came around 1876. Abe was not his father's favorite. In fact, 
Abe had so infuriated his father that Meyer reportedly kicked him out and cut him off in 1876, the year before the 23-year-old made his fateful trip to Jefferson. After his dad disowned him, Abe had traveled to Detroit and visited a so-called house of ill repute, where he met a fetching woman called Bessie Moore. Though Bessie was a sex worker, not a particularly respected vocation in 1870s society, she behaved and dressed like a bona fide lady, and that, matched with her good looks, made her a favorite of the male clientele. Bessie had thick black hair and deep brown eyes. She had a full, well-proportioned figure, or as the newspapers put it, she was buxom. Gentlemen callers routinely found themselves smitten with her, but she was smitten with something else. She often took jewelry and trade for her services. She loved diamonds. Abe had been one of Bessie's smitten clients. He couldn't give her diamonds like his competitors, but he had invited her to join him in his travels. She'd accepted and apparently sealed her fate. Abe Rothschild could play the part of a well-mannered baron, but behind closed doors, he was a brute. His disagreements with Bessie went far beyond cruel words. As investigators followed the couple's travels in reverse, they heard tale after tale of Bessie with black eyes and fat lips and bruised cheeks. Once the brutality was so extreme that Abe was arrested, a far less common occurrence in the 19th century than in the 21st. What was just as common then as it is now, however, is how tough it can be for abused women to break free of their abusers. Bessie bailed Abe out of jail and stayed with him. Along the way, he apparently mentioned to someone that she liked him more when she was drunk, so he plied her with alcohol to keep her docile, complacent. Investigators figured they should visit Abe's stomping grounds to learn more about him, so they boarded a train for Cincinnati. When they arrived, they got startling news. By what felt like a stroke of luck, Abe was in town, but he was in the hospital. The day before, the sound of gunfire had drawn a security guard and barkeep outside of the popular bar Ogg's Clubhouse at about 2.30 in the morning. There, they found Abe slumped on the steps, a pool of blood at his feet. He was still coherent and said a tall man with black facial hair had shot him. From the Cincinnati Enquirer on February 17, 1877, The ball had entered back of the right temple and passing diagonally forward behind and through the orbit of the right eye had lodged under the skin at the bridge of the nose. That reading is courtesy of podcast engineer Garrett Tiedemann. It turned out that Abe had told everyone he was worried he'd be attacked that very night. He'd been at the bar beforehand talking wildly about some man following him around town. Staffers in the editorial rooms of the nearby Enquirer heard a man cry murder, but heard no footsteps leaving the scene. The initial story about the shooting mentioned nothing of Bessie Moore. Folks in Cincinnati had no idea about the woman murdered in Texas, but said the shooter likely would remain a mystery, as Abe was expected to die. But he didn't. He clung to life, though he lost one eye. As soon as investigators realized their prime suspect would live, they moved to arrest and arraign him. Newspaper reporters caught wind of the bigger story, 
and began digging. They learned that Abe had brought Bessie to Cincinnati for a spell. He rented her a room in a boarding house owned by a man named Frank Wright and run by his wife, whom everyone called Miss Wright. And Miss Wright had seen some things. She told reporters that in June, she remembered because the Republican National Convention had descended on the city, Abe owed her some $75 in rent. Miss Wright talked to Bessie about the debt, but the poor girl just sobbed and said Abe had taken all of her money. The only things she still had were her diamonds, and he wanted those too, but she wouldn't hand them over. Bessie told Miss Wright that Abe beat her, complaining that she brought in less money than other sex workers. This pissed Miss Wright off, so the next time she saw Abe, she told him to knock it off. Unfortunately, all this did was enrage Abe. Furious that Bessie had told anyone about his treatment of her, he began beating her far harder than before. In a Cincinnati Inquirer story dated February 22, 1877. Several people who lived on Harrison Street came to Miss Wright's door and told her a man was beating a naked woman in one of her rooms upstairs, and if it didn't stop, they would have the police raid the house. Miss Wright went up to Bessie's room and found Rothschild beating and choking her in a fearful manner. Her body, head, neck, and limbs were black and blue with bruises, and he had the handle of a broken pitcher in his hand, with which he was attempting to strike her. Miss Wright caught him and took it away from him, and told him he ought to be ashamed to treat a woman so. I'm not totally sure I believe everything reported in this story, in part because it includes a suspiciously convenient exchange in which Miss Wright said Abe told her, I'll kill her yet. If I don't do it here, I will somewhere else. It seems feasible that Miss Wright liked getting her name in the paper. Regardless, some of the elements of the story were corroborated by others, like that Bessie had one diamond ring worth more than $500, the equivalent of about $13,000 today, and diamond drop earrings worth about three times that much. It was also corroborated that at some point, Bessie was in dire enough financial straits that she pawned some of the diamonds as collateral for a loan, only to buy them back as soon as she was able. Reporters dug into Bessie's background and found a few bits of trivia. She'd been born as Annie Stone and raised in Syracuse, New York, for example. Bessie had been her nickname. Her family wasn't well off, but they were comfortable. Her dad owned a shoe store in town. At age 15, she ran away from home to live as a mistress to a man surnamed Moore. To give the relationship the sheen of respectability, she took his last name, and that's how Annie Stone became Bessie Moore. Jefferson officials were thrilled to have finally figured out who both the victim and the suspect were in their case, but as cut and dried as everything seemed, they quickly learned that charging Abe Rothschild with murder would be anything but. Because... Though his dad had disowned him previously, Meyer Rothschild wasn't comfortable letting his oldest son go down for murder, so he got his kid the best defense lawyer's money could buy. That included lead defense lawyer Major Charles Blackburn, who was famous in Cincinnati because he had previously served as head prosecuting attorney. Well, that was one of the reasons. He'd also made headlines that very year for apparently being blackmailed by a bunch of lovers, disappearing from town, and then falsely being rumored to have killed himself. Some of those headlines, Blackburn, a brilliant bubble bursted, 
sad end of a prominent career, and the story of one wife and many women. Long story short, Blackburn needed a win, and he made fighting for the Rothschilds his top priority. Blackburn's first order of business was fighting to make sure Abe Rothschild was never taken from Ohio to Texas to face charges, period. Even in the early stories about Abe Rothschild's gunshot wound, his story about a man with dark whiskers shooting him was treated with suspicion. The Inquirer's story read, quote, Whether this was an accident, an attempt at assassination, or an attempt at self-destruction, the world will hardly know with certainty unless the victim recovers sufficiently and tells the story himself, end quote. It's rather amazing that Abe survived the gunshot, especially in this age predating antibiotics by some 50 years. The security guard and barkeep who found Abe sitting in a pool of blood hauled him straight away to Weatherbead's drugstore, where Dr. O.E. Davis rushed to the scene. The physician removed the bullet, flattened by Abe's skull. Of course, by the time Abe had recovered sufficiently, Investigators had gathered a fair bit of info on Diamond Bessie. She had apparently met up with Abe in one of these houses of ill repute, and the two started traveling together. Not only that, but it turned out that maybe it wasn't a shame-shielding lie when Abe signed the two in as husband and wife, at least not toward the end of Bessie's life. Though Abe had told no one about it, records showed that they were married in Danville, Illinois, just nine days before arriving in Jefferson. By the way, this sparked some to wonder if maybe she'd been pregnant when killed, but the coroner found that wasn't the case. By the time Abe was arrested, the notion that he had been shot by anyone other than himself had been abandoned entirely. The only question posited from then on was whether he shot himself to flee the law or flee his own remorse. Now, reading newspaper coverage of Abe's arrest serves as a stark reminder of just how much journalism has changed over the last century and a half. The stories not only presented as fact that Abe had attempted suicide, but they outright convicted him of Bessie's murder long before trial. One headline read, A Murderer Attempts Suicide. As you can imagine, Abe's lawyers figured this wasn't good. So first, they fought extradition. That didn't work in the long run, but it did buy him some time. After Rutherford B. Hayes left his third term as Ohio's governor in early March 1877, his successor, Thomas Young, quickly signed Abe's order of extradition. Once Abe was in Texas, the legal maneuvering continued. When it came time for trial, the lawyers immediately filed for a change of venue, stating that Abe could not get a fair trial in Marion County. This was granted, and the trial began at the courthouse in Marshall, Texas, on December 17, 1878. That's nearly two full years after Bessie's death. In the meantime, Abe got a glass eye and dressed resplendently for trial. He wrote a friend a letter that was leaked to reporters that bragged about how well he was being treated in Jefferson's jail. He wrote, quote, I have a very nice, large, well-ventilated room here with every comfort that I could ask for. I'm allowed to promenade the streets twice a day, an hour in the a.m. and one in the p.m. Everybody is very kind and courteous to me, 
and all seem bent to make me feel like anything but a prisoner, end quote. He also said he sometimes had hundreds of visitors a day and received bouquets of flowers from female admirers. The jailer is one of the boys, he wrote, and I am permitted to have the society of ladies whenever I please. The showy nature of Abe's defense team didn't sit well with court watchers and politicians in Texas. One of Abe's lawyers reportedly bragged that his fee was so large, he'd never have to work again for the rest of his life. Texas Governor Richard Hubbard was disturbed enough that he sent two assistant attorneys general to bolster the prosecution. There was another factor working against the Rothschild defense, anti-Semitism. Here's a line from the Cincinnati Enquirer describing the audience at one of his pretrial hearings. Quote, There was quite a sprinkling of Jews among the number, of which race the defendant is one, as his name implies. End quote. Make a snarky comment, but I'm just too sad. Anyway, the parade of witnesses called by the prosecution seemingly included half the town. Barkeeps described the couple's drink orders and their fighting. Waiters described their food preferences and their fighting. It was all pretty weak until the prosecution called to the stand M.T. Matthews, who worked at the hardware store R. Boloff & Co. He testified that on Saturday, January 20th, the day before the fateful picnic, a man he recognized as the defendant walked into his shop and bought a pistol. Next, the coroner testified. He said the angle of the bullet fired into Bessie's head precluded suicide. The coroner determined that the victim had been shot in the left temple at a very close range. And investigators noted that remnants of a picnic were found nearby, including chicken bones, pickle fragments, and beer bottles. This was the same food waitstaff testified they sold to the couple on January 21st, the day of the picnic. Jenny Simpson's testimony was especially key. Not only did the Brooks house chambermaid add to the fighting descriptions, but she also told the jury that when she saw the man she knew as A. Monroe on the evening of January 21st, he came home accompanied only by Bessie's diamonds. That was a Sunday. There were no trains out of town on Monday, so A. Monroe spent the entire day sequestered in his room, but there was still no sign of his wife. A. Monroe took the first train out of Jefferson on Tuesday morning, January 23rd, and he had both his and his wife's luggage with him. Again, there was no sign of his wife. It was damning testimony, to be sure, but Abe's lawyers were prepared to fight. Their main defense hinged on the fact that when Bessie's body was recovered on February 6th, nearly two weeks after the state alleged Abe killed her, her corpse was in pristine condition, all things given. While the state explained this away by pointing to the recent snowfall that had shut down the town for a few days, the defense brought forth doctors who said she should have at minimum been disturbed by animals, but she wasn't. Not only that, but a man named Simon Hart of Jackson, Mississippi, claimed to have seen Bessie in his town between the 28th and the 30th of January, which would have meant she died far closer to the time her body had been found. And since Abe could prove that he left Jefferson on January 23rd and didn't return until he was forced to, well, that meant he couldn't be the killer. If this swayed any jurors, the effect was short-lived. 
In fact, author Barty Hale wrote in his book Murder Most Texan that the jury foreman actually started deliberations by sketching a noose on the wall, autographing the artwork, and declaring that his verdict. The other 11 followed suit within hours. The sentence was mandatory. Rothschild would hang. But that's not the end of the story. As you'd expect, after Abe Rothschild was convicted of murder, his lawyers filed an appeal. The grounds for their appeal were interesting. First, they took issue with a grand jury indictment. It didn't positively identify Bessie as the victim. I mean, it did, but the wording was that the jury was, quote, charging that on January 21st, 1877, with a pistol and of malice aforethought, killed a certain white woman whose Christian name and surname is to the grand jurors aforesaid unknown, but whom the grand jurors aforesaid do name and call Bessie Moore, alias Bessie Rothschild, alias Diamond Bessie, end quote. Secondly, Abe's lawyers noted that during jury selection, one of the prospective jurors said he knew about the case, he had already formed an opinion about it, and he doubted that anything presented during the trial was likely to change his mind. As such, it's generally reported that the verdict was overturned on two technicalities. I agree that the last name thing probably qualifies as a technicality, but seating a juror with an admitted bias? Yeah, not so much. Either way, the appellate court ruled that Abe should get another chance. A new trial was started on December 16, 1880, at the courthouse in Jefferson, some three and a half years after Rothschild had first been brought back for trial. This time, his lawyers had the benefit of knowing what the prosecution witnesses were set to testify, and they were prepared. To counter Jenny Simpson's claim that she saw Abe return from the picnic without Bessie, but with Bessie's rings, they called Belle Gouldy, who said she had seen Bessie with a strange man on two separate occasions, once the day before her disappearance, and then again four days after she was supposed to be dead. She was the only person to testify as such, and she had no corroboration, but it proved to be effective nonetheless. The second jury took four hours to acquit Abe. Although there were rumors of bribery and jury tampering, Abe Rothschild was allowed to walk out of court as a free man. Some newspaper editorials balked, saying that he'd bought his freedom with fancy pants attorneys. If so, it didn't matter. There'd be no circling back. To this day, the murder of Diamond Bessie Moore remains technically unsolved. But not forgotten. Straight away, it was clear that townsfolk had a soft spot for Bessie, one that maybe seemed surprising given her vocation in Victorian-era Texas. Residents took up a collection and paid to give her a proper burial and tombstone at Oakwood Cemetery. As the decades passed, the tombstone grew so weathered it was no longer legible. One evening in November 1933, sometime between sundown and sunup, Something mysterious occurred. A new marker appeared on the grave. It had a diamond chiseled into the stone with the words, Bessie Moore, December 31st, 1876. If you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that the date's all wrong. 
Bessie is believed to have died January 21, 1877. Although the date of death was wrong, the sentiment was heartfelt. Eight years later, in 1941, ironworker Ed McDonald revealed himself as the benefactor, saying that he did it just to get the town talking. In a later interview, he also added, I placed it there one night because it just didn't seem right for Diamond Bessie to sleep in an unmarked grave. In 1955, Jeffersonians first commemorated the case with an annual performance of the Diamond Bessie murder trial. Actors portrayed the main players in the case with dialogue lifted straight from the trial transcripts. Although it is a lighthearted adaptation, it is surprisingly accurate. It's been performed every year since during the May historic pilgrimage in Jefferson. It sells out to capacity crowds every year. A few years later, in the 1960s, an area garden club built a wrought iron fence around her grave with a bench for visitors. They attached a metal plaque that got the date of death wrong again, this time on purpose to match the tombstone. Her grave is regularly adorned with flowers and Mardi Gras beads and other mementos, stuffed animals and costume jewelry too. Some people leave behind coins, which volunteers collect and put in a fund to keep fresh flowers coming. One strange thing is that every December, we find a semicircle of plastic martini glasses around the headstone. They have been carefully placed there as if some folks were paying their respects to the lady by drinking a toast to her. Over the years, Bessie's story has been romanticized some. A trunk that she had bought in New Orleans but returned was deemed cursed by the New Orleans Times because several subsequent owners died soon after acquiring it. Bessie is also a favorite of ghost hunters in Jefferson. Guests have also experienced chance encounters with Diamond Bessie. You would think Bessie's spirit might have settled at the Brooks house where she and Abe had stayed, but no. The Excelsior House Hotel has a suite named after Bessie, and it's there that she supposedly haunts. Diamond Bessie is room 104. One of the most romantic elements of this story is the oft-repeated postscript that sometime in the 1890s, a handsome man visited the cemetery and asked the caretaker to point him to Diamond Bessie's resting place. The stranger supposedly lay a wreath of roses on the grave and knelt in prayer. When he left, he handed the caretaker $10 and requested that he make sure the site was maintained. Some say that it was Abe Rothschild come to pay his final respects. My guess is that this sweet story is utter bullshit. See, back in the 1890s, and really until fairly recently, it wasn't easy to learn what happened to someone once they were no longer in the national spotlight. You couldn't Google. Even if you had access to newspaper archives before the internet, you'd only be able to search one publication at a time. With the benefit of modern technology, I can tell you this. Abe Rothschild didn't seem like the type of guy to have mourned Bessie Moore. He continued the rest of his life, bouncing from state to state, committing all sorts of crimes. Granted, he was never accused of murder again, but his escapades quickly led his father to again disowning him, this time for good. When Meyer Rothschild died in 1895, his will didn't even mention his oldest son. Even Abe's mom, Rosa, who lived 20 years beyond her husband, never welcomed her son back into the fold. A sampling of Abe's alleged misdeeds. 
In June 1889, he attacked an appraiser whose assessment of a piano Abe wanted to sell was too low by Abe's standards. Abe's glass eye fell out during the scuffle and broke. In 1892, he got in an argument after gambling with a New York businessman named John Springer, and he shot at the man. In June 1893, the Cincinnati Enquirer reported that he was wanted by police in Springfield, Missouri, after he claimed to be head of a bar fixture company in New York City. He talked a businessman into cashing a check for $250, and then Abe skipped town. The story concludes, quote, Rothschild is a worthless fellow and has caused his folks a world of trouble and worryment and cost them a fortune. He is no longer considered a member of the family, end quote. In March 1895, Nashville police identified Abe as a suspect in a high-profile diamond robbery. Within days, he was picked up by Pinkerton detectives who said he was part of a gang that had been on a crime spree, robbing a bank in Elgin, Texas, stealing $10,000 worth of jewelry from a shop in El Paso, stealing more jewels from a wholesale house in Baton Rouge, and stealing $7,000 in diamonds and precious stones from a store in Jackson, Mississippi. It was around this time that investigators figured out that Abe had for years been running an elaborate diamond-stealing operation that worked like this. Abe would arrive as a stranger in some random town and introduce himself with a name matching the town's leading jeweler. He'd write himself a letter and put it in the mail. He would then approach the town's postmaster to say, Hey, I'm new here, and what a dink! but my name is almost exactly the same as this other guy's name in town, and I know there's a letter waiting for me, but you probably gave it to the other guy, which makes sense. Honest mistake. Let's just make sure I get my mail and he gets his, okay? Then Abe would call a supplier posing as the other jeweler, and on that man's good name and credit, convince the supplier to mail him diamonds. Then he'd pick up those diamonds from the post office and skip town. And the guy whose name he co-opted would start getting bills from the supplier for jewels he knew nothing about. This was a wildly successful ruse. That's what he'd done in Nashville. And he also did it in Swainsboro, Georgia, in Chillicothe, Ohio, in Indianapolis, in Ontario, Canada, and in Houston, Texas. In 1899, he tried to bribe police officers with counterfeit money. Also that year, he escaped jail by jumping off a train while being transported from Cincinnati to Indianapolis. He'd been shackled to another prisoner. They both jumped together, but they couldn't get the shackles off and surrendered a few days later. His hijinks continued the rest of his life. A New York jury found him guilty in 1908 of using the mail to defraud. Each time he was sentenced, it would be for a few paltry years, and then he'd get out and get right back to scheming. The American Israelite, a Jewish publication launched in 1854 and still around today in Cincinnati, ran an editorial in 1895 that said, quote, After his father had spent a large fortune in debauching courts and juries to save Abe's worthless life, paying forfeit for the murder of a depraved woman, it was thought that the fellow would be satisfied to spend the rest of his days in making amends for the suffering he had caused. But there was no good in him. He is bad all the way through. 
end quote. The piece closes, quote, It was a great mistake to save Abe's neck, for if a fellow ever justly deserved hemp, he was the one, end quote. In a wonderful bit of irony, there's a listing on findagrave.com that says Abe died July 20th, 1923 in Atlantic City and was either buried at sea or in an unmarked grave. I can't find anything corroborating that, but I did find an Abe Rothschild who died in Newark City, New Jersey in June 1921. I'd like to think that's him and that his date of death will forever be screwed up just like Bessie's. To research this story, I spent an eye-crossing amount of time in newspaper archives. You'd think that a guy with a distinctive glass eye who made headlines all the time for various schemes would have trouble getting suckers to fall for his shtick, but no! I also read that Murder Most Texan book, and thank goodness for Mitchell Whittington's history talk. Without him, you'd have had to listen to me for basically the entire time. Thanks also to Garrett Tiedemann for his news readings. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>